uh, Advent series, uh, Narnia. And um, I'm going to start with having the kids join me again up front. And I also need four volunteers to help us light. Okay, you guys are so fast. Tristan, come on up. One more volunteer. One more volunteer who's not a Wong. Asher. How many, who, who's, sit down, guys, except for those who have volunteered. Elliot, did you raise your hand? You want to help? Come, come on up. All right, each of you who volunteered, grab a candle, and we're going to light the Christmas candle, okay? That's the third one. The pink one is the third. You can hold on to it, but I'm going to do you third, okay? Elsie, why don't you grab a candle? Which one of you doing it? Either one of you. No, I'm going to help. Okay, grab a candle. Okay, Elsie, you want to go first? All right, why don't you hold it down, and I'm going to light. Oh, this is the tricky one. Hold it this way. All right. Okay, we light these candles to remember that Jesus is coming and that he is light in the darkness. Why don't you go put it, put it in, Elsie? Okay, Tristan? Okay, why don't you put it in, Tristan? Don't set anything on fire. Asher, I need you. The third candle. All right. All right. You guys ready? Point it down. All right. Wait till they're done, and then you guys go put it put it in. Okay. Whoa. Careful. There's one more at the back. Do you want me to spin it for you, or you got it? All right. Good job not setting yourself on fire. Good job. And let us read together the Advent reading, which I don't have. There, someone start. Signs in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Okay. Kids, we're in the middle of this Narnia story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I hope you've maybe been reading it or you've read it before or you watched the movie. But remember last week I talked about, I gave you each a sleigh bell. And I said that the sleigh bell was actually the sound of the sleigh bells on the white witch's sleigh. And that it reminded that it was winter. But today we hear different sleigh bells. Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver and Peter and Susan and Lucy hear some sleigh bells and they think the white witch has found them. But what they realize is something else much happier. Okay, so that's where we dive in to the story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, you ready? Didn't I tell you, answered Mr. Beaver, that she'd made it always winter and never Christmas. Didn't I tell you? Well, just come and see. And then they were all at the top and did see. It was a sledge. And it was reindeer with bells on their harness, but they were far bigger than the witch's reindeer, and they were not white, but brown. And on the sledge sat a person whom everyone knew the moment they set eyes on him. He was a huge man, in a bright red robe, bright as holly berries, with a hood that had fur inside it and a great white beard. <gasps> I think you might be right. He had a great white beard that fell like a foamy waterfall over his chest. 
Everyone knew him because, though you see people of his sort only in Narnia, you see pictures of them and hear them talked about even in our world, the world on this side of the wardrobe door. But when you see them in Narnia, it is rather different. Some of the pictures of Father Christmas in our world make him look only funny and jolly. But now that the children actually stood looking at him, they didn't find it quite like that. He was so big and so glad and so real that they all became quite still. They felt very glad, but also solemn, serious. I've come at last, said he. She has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. And Lucy felt running through her that deep shiver of gladness, which you only get if you're being solemn and still. And now, said Father Christmas, for your presence. There is a new and better sewing machine for you, Mrs. Beaver. I will drop it in your house as I pass. If you please, sir, said Mrs. Beaver, making a curtsy. It's locked up. Locks and bolts make no difference to me, said Father Christmas. And as for you, Mr. Beaver, when you get home, you will find your dam finished and mended and all the leaks stopped and a new sluice gate filled, fitted. Mr. Beaver was so pleased that he opened his mouth very wide, and then found he couldn't say anything at all. Peter, Adam's son, said Father Christmas. Here, sir, said Peter. These are your presents, was the answer, and they are tools, not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. The shield was the color of... With these words, he handed to Peter a shield and a sword. The shield was the color of silver, and across it there ramped a red lion, as bright as ripe strawberry at the moment when you pick it. The hilt of the sword was of gold, and it had a sheath and a sword belt and everything it needed, and it was just the right size. And wait for Peter to use. Peter was silent and solemn as he received these gifts, for he felt they were very serious kind of present. Susan, Eve's daughter, said Father Christmas, these are for you, and he handed over a bow and a quiver full of arrows and a little ivory horn. You must use the bow only in great need, he said, for I do not mean you to fight in the battle. It does not easily miss. And when you put this horn to your lips and blow it, then wherever you are, I think help of some kind will come to you. Last of all, he said, Lucy, Eve's daughter, and Lucy came forward. He gave her a little bottle of what looked like glass, but people said afterwards that it was made of diamond and a small dagger. In this bottle, he said, there is a cordial made of the juice of one of the fire flowers that grow in the mountains of the sun. If you or any of your friends is hurt, a few drops of this will restore them, and the dagger is to defend yourself at great need. Okay. Now, in the book... Father Christmas appears as Aslan the lion, Aslan the king, is coming to defeat the white witch. And that finally, it won't always be winter, but never Christmas. That spring and summer are finally coming in Narnia. And all of that is just a picture painted for us to remind us that Jesus is coming. What are we celebrating right now? Christmas. Christmas. And Christmas reminds us what? What does Christmas remind us of? Of his coming. Of his coming, exactly. That Jesus is coming to take away all the sin from the world to fix everything that is broken. Now, in this 
part that I just read, Father Christmas gives the children gifts, not to play with, but rather to use in the battle against the white witch. Now, do any of you have gifts that you're looking forward to getting maybe this Christmas that you hope that perhaps you might get? Wow, excellent choice. New books, that's a great choice. Mason, do you have gifts that you're looking forward to? Hoping for? You're hoping for some toys? Yeah, I bet others of you are hoping for toys this Christmas as well. Now, you may have gifts that you're really looking forward to this Christmas, but I want to ask you something else. This might seem a bit strange, but what is something that you're really good at? Any one of you? Yes, Elsie, what is something you're good at? Monkey bars. Monkey bars, okay. What are you really good at? Dribbling. Dribbling, the basketball? Okay. Asher, what are you really good at? Monkey bars as well, Tristan? Games. Yes, Cora, what are you good at? Sewing. Sewing. Yes, Mason, what are you good at? Playing monkey bars as well. Asher, you got something else you're good at? Soccer. Okay. Let me ask something slightly different. What is something that you are known for by, by other people? Something that you're known for. Maybe like you're known to be kind. You're known to be smart. Or what? You're kind and smart. Excellent. Full of confidence too. Tristan, what, are, what is something you're known for? You're known for games? Okay, Mason, what are you known for? Basketball? Okay, what are you known for? Being smart. Being smart? Okay, we have very confident children here. It's excellent. Now, all of these things that you guys mentioned, things that you're good at, things that you're known for, did you know that these are gifts that God has given you? Just like these are get, that the children in the story got gifts from Father Christmas. All these things that you're good at and that you're known for are gifts that God has given you. And he's given you these gifts, not just for yourself, but to share with others, to bless others, to help others with those gifts that you have. Now, I want you to remember this Christmas, though, that God does give you Christmas gifts, that God gives you gifts of things that you're good at, but the greatest gift is Jesus. That Jesus is the one that makes all of those gifts so much more meaningful and real. That he is the one that gives us our relationship with God. Now I'm going to give you something, and it's kind of like a homework. Not really. It's kind of fun too. I'm going to give you a gift. Okay? Now, but I have some instructions for this gift as well, just like Father Christmas gave some instructions to the children. I have some gifts of gold coins for you. And each of you, I think I have enough, can get two each. I hope I can uh, measure up to this promise. Now, I'm going to give you each two coins, okay? One is for you to enjoy, and the other is for you to share, to give away to someone else. Maybe put it in your coat pocket. And maybe as you're out and about, maybe you see someone who's homeless and you think they could use a gold coin. It's chocolate. It's okay. It's not really gold. Maybe they would want some chocolate. Maybe you go to the grocery store and you see the Salvation Army person ringing their bell. Maybe they look cold and they could use 
a gold coin. Maybe you're playing in your neighborhood with your friends and you see, hey, maybe I'm going to share my gold coin with them. All right? Maybe you have family visiting from out of town. All right? So one for you and one to share. All right? You're right here? I, I can see you. No, don't grab. When you have gotten your coins, you may go back and join your parents. Oh, sorry. Am I gonna am I gonna make it? I don't have a bottomless bag. We're going to run out before we get to my children. Whoa. Jesus knows best. I'm out of coins. All the children have been accounted for. Let's um, pray and we'll continue. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We ask your blessing upon your word. We ask that your word would draw us closer to Jesus, the word, that this season is about Jesus, who is the Logos, the one who brings us into relationship with God. And may we know all the gifts we are given are given for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to dig into today's passage. And I want you, if you like to take notes, if you take notes either on your phone or or you like to write it down, I want you to write down these three things. The gifts we are given are, one, given in the battle. Okay? The gifts we are given are, one, given in the battle. Two, are given, I'm sorry, the gifts we are given, number two, are empowered by God. And number three, the gifts we are given are given to be shared. Number three, the gifts we are given are given to be shared. Okay? And we're going we're gonna to look at the verses in 1 Corinthians to explore those three points. So let's dig in. Verse 1 to 3 in 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. We see here that Jesus, you know, this, this verse about spiritual gifts is, is, is well known, and yet the context for it is given essentially as a spiritual battle. We are given the context here by Paul when he says, he doesn't say, now concerning spiritual gifts, let us take a personality test and an inventory of all of our strengths. He starts by saying and setting up this background from which they have come. This background which they've come where they have in the past worshipped pagan gods, have bowed down to statues made of gold or wood or metal or whatever it may be. And he says... You once lived in this way, and now you are called to live for God. And he gives this distinction between sort of these two groups. One group who might say, Jesus is accursed, and another group that says, Jesus is Lord. And it gives us this context in which we are to think of our our gifts. And again, that context is that we understand, just like in the illustration from Father Christmas in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the gifts we are given are given in the battle. 
There's a context in which we are given these gifts. It's not an easy thing to say Jesus is Lord. It might sound very straightforward. It's really a big thing to say it and truly mean it. I know when I first became a Christian in the early years of my being a Christian, it was difficult for my parents to see their son seek to live out his life in a way that represented Jesus as Lord. It wasn't that they had any problem with Christianity. They believed in God themselves. And yet, they didn't know what to do with my belief and faith that I'm to live my life as Jesus is my Lord, that he is king over all of my life, and that meant every decision I make, whether big or small, involved looking to Christ's direction in my life. Now, to say that Jesus is Lord is not just to say he is our master. There, again, is a scriptural context for this. When Paul says it in this verse, to say Jesus is Lord is to recognize that Jesus is Yahweh. That from the Jewish context, to say that someone is Lord is to say that this person is king over their life and a divine king at that. And so it is to, to say, when we say Jesus is Lord, in Paul's context is to say that to believe that Jesus was born supernaturally of the Virgin Mary as a fulfillment of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament and to believe that Jesus came as God in the flesh, Yahweh of the Old Testament in the flesh and to begin this new covenant relationship with his people. Now, in addition to that, for believers in Paul's time to say Jesus as Lord had a political context, a political context in the sense that what people expected you to believe is Caesar is Lord. And so instead to say Jesus as Lord is in some ways to stand against the emperor. We've mentioned it a few times in the last month, but we are hearing increasingly of persecution, religious persecution of Christians and other minorities in China. And the government in China wants people to say the state is Lord. And they're even okay with this whole Christianity thing if people would just go to the government-sanctioned churches. You can have your faith in Jesus if you will go to the government-sanctioned churches where we're in control of it. But if you are going to insist on going to an underground church, if you're going to insist on publicly publicly worshipping not under the umbrella of the sanctioned church, then you are going against the most fundamental belief that must exist, which is the state is Lord. And we see many bold believers in China refusing to say the state is Lord, to recognize only Jesus as Lord. And we see powerfully how that has to be, given the price they must pay from the Holy Spirit. Now, on the flip side, it's also a big thing to say Jesus is accursed. Paul is reminding his belie- uh, the readers of how they once lived. Again, living to please pagan gods, worshiping and sacrificing to statues that cannot reveal or speak to them in any way. And to hold that in contrast to the Christian faith that believes that there is one true living God who has always been from the beginning about revealing himself, speaking to his people from the time we see him in Genesis create Adam and Eve, the way he relate to them. Throughout scripture, he is a God that has been revealing himself and making himself known very clearly. And how much more clearly then when Christ came into the world that God 
would take on flesh. He revealed himself ever more clearly to the human race through Jesus Christ being born into this world. And then to say Jesus is a curse then is to say that we are in opposition to God even though he is the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards us. There is a battle, a spiritual battle going on. A battle between those who would say and mean Jesus is Lord and those who would say and mean Jesus is accursed. So again, it's just like in the Narnia story where Father Christmas gives these gifts to Peter and Susan and Lucy in the context of a battle. The gifts we are given are in the context of a battle as well. But it's not a physical battle. ISIS thinks they are in a physical battle for the glory of Allah and the world stands against it. Christians in the 11th to 13th century in the Christian Crusades thought it was a physical battle. And Christians today must, with great regret, see that there was something deeply wrong in that belief and repent of it. And it's not a cultural battle. It's not a fight to impose a cultural Christian culture on others. It's not a, a fight to bring America back to a Christian nation. Now, this is a topic for another sermon, but your view on the end times is going to greatly affect your view on what is Jesus doing here? What kind of battle are we in? There is a battle. And we could even say, Scripture clearly says it's a spiritual battle. But how does that work out? What does it mean in terms of how we relate to the people around us? But yet, we must recognize that there is a battle. Christians on both sides of the aisle, if we make the mistake to think that the battle is chiefly cultural, then we will always be tempted to make our faith political. Which I think Jesus makes clear that is not ultimately what our faith is about. Although there may be and should have implications on our political beliefs. It is first and foremost a spiritual battle that has implications in the way we live in this physical world. And we want... To live our lives as those whose lives shout out Jesus is Lord through the way we love the people around us and through our words share the hope we have as Jesus is Lord. The gifts we have are given by God but given in the context of a spiritual battle. And we are given these gifts while we long greatly for Jesus to finally and fully bring in his kingdom to eradicate all evil and sin and brokenness and long for him to make all things new. But these verses continue in Paul in verses 4 to 6 where we see the gifts we are given are empowered by God. And this might sound very subtle but let me go through that quickly. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. I don't know if you noticed that, but notice the parallel statements that are made here. Three times, there's varieties of this, and there's the same that. There are a variety of gift, service, and activities, but the same Spirit, Lord, and God. The same Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, and God the Father. The parallel statements are meant to point to the Trinitarian nature of God. That God is three 
in one. And it is this God who is three in one who empowers the gifts within us. I was watching a... um, I think President Trump was speaking at something and right behind his head was um, the, our nation's motto, e pluribus unum, which if you don't know, which I'm sure most of you know, means out of many, one. Out of many, one. Right? Out of many states, one country. But this very phrase is also descriptive of our faith in God. Three persons, one God. Out of many, one. And Paul is pointing to the God who is three in one, out of many, one, to remind us that we, the people of God, reflect the God who is three in one. That we are many. We're not that many, but we are many, but we are one. That we have many different gifts and services and activities, but we are one in the Lord. Out of many, one. E pluribus unum. Exists here in the body of God, as, uh, the body of Christ as well. These gifts that he gives each and every one of us, yes, he gives uniquely to us. Because he has created us specifically and uniquely for his purposes. Yet it was not enough for Paul to say, he gave us these gifts. He says, God empowers these gifts in us. Why? Does he say it that way? He's, he doesn't just say he, God gave us these gifts because he is, he's trying to tell us that it's not just about God created us uniquely. He put a battery in us and he said, off you go, my product. That's not his point. His point is saying, if we have faith in Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit and the gifts he has given us are empowered by him who is our power source. He is not just the creator who created a product and set us off into the world and remains distant from us. He is the God who is God with us, who works in us and through us, who is one with us. As Christians, Paul is telling about, as Christians, Paul is telling us that God dwells inside of us and that we should know that if we think our gifts are quite ordinary that we should remember that these very ordinary gifts that we have are empowered by the Spirit of God within us. We may feel very insecure about our gifts. We may think we have nothing special to offer the church, the world, the people around us. But what God says is, regardless of how you feel about your gifts, they've been given by God They are empowered by God. And God is at work in you for his kingdom. When we use and evaluate our spiritual gifts, we often think, am I doing good enough with my spiritual gifts? Am I being productive enough with my spiritual gifts? Is God pleased with how my spiritual gifts are being used to create great change in this world? And yet, the way Paul talks about it is, it seems that God does not care so much about our productivity or the quality of our gifts being used. He cares about our faithfulness of using our spiritual gifts for his kingdom. There is something to cooperating with the Holy Spirit within us so that these spiritual gifts may be used for the sake of God's purposes. Yet what we are reminded of here 
with this very simple fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers these gifts in us is that what God cares about is simply our faithfulness to cooperating with the Spirit for these gifts to be used. Because again, He is the one who is empowering in us. If God is the one who is empowering, as it says here, empowering them all in everyone, maybe we should judge God when we feel like our gifts are not good enough or not productive enough. I mean that tongue-in-cheek, of course. That would be ridiculous to judge God. And that is my point. We get so wrapped up in being productive, being good enough, and God says, that is not the way I work. That is not the new covenant in which I've entered into with you. I am at work in you. Cooperate with the Spirit in, in you that is empowering these gifts. I hope whenever you struggle with wondering, are you offering enough? Are your spiritual gifts being used? Are they productive enough to think? That's the wrong direction from which to think about it. Think first about your oneness with God. Think about the God who is in you, who empowers you to use these gifts within you. God doesn't care to compare you with how everyone else is using their gifts. God simply cares about your faithfulness and your relationship with Him to be used by Him. We've looked at how our gifts are given in the battle. We've looked at how our gifts are given and empowered by God. But then the question is, what are they for? What are these gifts for? And we see this in this very simple but powerful verse in verse 7. And we see that the gifts we are given are given to be shared. Verse 7 says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Again, Paul, make sure we don't forget this. The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is seeking to make Himself manifest to the world through our spiritual gifts. That is the work that happens through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we do have to say to ourselves, let us not dare hide His manifestation, the Holy Spirit's manifestation to the world around us, to the people around us, by not working with the Holy Spirit for our gifts to be used in this world. Now you say, but God, my gifts are so boring and so ordinary. God says, I don't care. I'm revealing myself through you, through your gifts. The manifestation of the Spirit is for the common good through our spiritual gifts. Translated differently, it means to are, are for the sake of helping others, for the sake of benefiting others. These gifts we are given are given to be shared. They're given for a purpose. This is going to sound boastful for a moment, but I'll go with it. On the topic of identity in Christ, I feel like I was way ahead of my time. I can remember as far back as 1998, when I was doing ministry with a youth group then, that I preached about identity in Christ, that I shared with my sister about the most important thing to me about my faith is that I found my identity as a person through the God who loves me. That was like exactly 20 years ago. And now it's like all the rage, right? Like just literally this week, someone gave me another book about identity in Christ. And really, I wasn't 
that smart. Looking back, I just recognize 20 years ago, I was just on the early cusp of what was happening in Western cultural philosophical movement. This drift towards thinking about questions of identity. And now we see, it's talked about all the time, whether in politics or in, in our Christian faith, identity, identity is so emphasized. Now, I think it's good overall. It's good for us to wrestle with who has God made us? God has made us unique and we need to understand the uniqueness in which God has made us and what he wants to use us and to set ourselves upon our identity in Christ who is the one who loves us and has given us, given himself for us. And I encourage you to continue on that journey as a Christian to find your identity in Christ. But I will say this as the warning as it comes to this this particular point. The most dangerous thing I see about this prevalence of talking about finding our identity is this, is that we begin to think of it as I find my identity for myself. And our identity is often found in our gifts, right? I'm good at this. I'm known for this. That's my identity. And so when we journey on this this journey of finding our identity, it can be this very subtle shift to beginning to think it is simply for ourselves. Seeing our gifts as for ourselves, for our identity. It is mine, my precious. We don't ever really say that. But in order to find our identity in Christ and who he has made us, we do have to have an inward focus to look at our hearts and who God has made us. And yet... If we stay only in that inward posture, then what happens is we begin to see our gifts as essentially only for our own sake, only for our own actualization, only for our own joy. And our faith then becomes a very subtle form of prosperity gospel. Hear this. It is as if we say to God, Lord, if I truly become the person you have created me, then you will bless me. Lord, if I truly become who you've intended me to be, then you will bless me. But God doesn't make any kind of deal with us like that. Yes, we must seek our identity in Christ. We must seek who we have been created to be. Yet we must remember to turn it back outward in service to others. To remember that the gifts are given to be shared. And really, this, this whole, all three points we've talked about so far is a counter to that easy, subtle shift towards thinking our gifts and our identity is simply for ourselves. When we remember that our gifts are given in the battle, when we remember our gifts are empowered by God who is within us and that our gifts are given to be shared. Our gifts are for God, by God, and for the sake of others. And I want to ask you a very simple application question. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? You know, and maybe you don't. Maybe you've never even asked yourself that question. If you do know, are you faithfully, not necessarily productively, are you faithfully using your spiritual gifts? Are you using your spiritual gifts, understanding that it is for the sake of the spiritual kingdom of God and for the common good? of our community. 
on a motivational level, are you using your gifts not ultimately to satisfy your sense of identity as a person, but to respond to God's love revealed to us through Jesus Christ, who is God come down? course, when we hear these questions, we all recognize we have fallen short in some way of using our spiritual gifts for the glory of God, for the benefit of others. And so we must, we must, we must turn from a self-focus to a God-focus and to say, again, Christmas is about God come in the flesh, God come down to be with us, to become one with us, to work in us. Christmas should be the most obvious reminder of the gospel to us. He is indeed the greatest gift we could ever receive. We could not be one with him if God did not come in the flesh. We could not have gifts given in the battle, empowered by God for the sake of the common good, if we did not first receive the gift of union with God. Christmas is so much not just about baby Jesus but about God taking this gigantic step down so that we might be one with him to fulfill his promise of being God with us that he spoke about in the Old Testament and I hope that this Christmas that is what you celebrate that you celebrate that you are one with God Jesus is this gift that ultimately is not just meant for ourselves. Jesus, the greatest gift, is the gift that is also given to be shared. It is the gift that we are given, and if we share it and it's received by others, the joy simply multiplies. Just like all of our gifts are given to be shared, so is this greatest gift of Jesus who gives us union with God. I want to end with a quote from Prince Caspian to bring us back to Narnia. And it's really just a beautiful picture of being reminded that we are empowered by the God who is at work within us. Lucy um, is reacquainted with Aslan in Prince Caspian. And she says this, you mean, said Lucy rather faintly, that it would have turned out all right somehow. But how? Please, Aslan, am I not to know? To know what would have happened, child, said Aslan. No, nobody has ever told that. Oh dear, said Lucy. Lucy, that anyone can find out what will happen, said Aslan. If you go back to the others now and wake them up and tell them you have seen me again and that you must all get up at once and follow me, what will happen? There's only one way of finding out. Do you mean that is what you want me to do? Gasped Lucy. Yes, little one, said Aslan. Will the others see you too? Asked Lucy. Certainly not at first, said Aslan. Later on, it depends. But they won't believe me, said Lucy. It doesn't matter, said Aslan. Oh dear, oh dear, said Lucy. And I was so pleased at finding you again. And I thought that you'd let me stay. And I thought you'd come roaring in and frighten all the enemies away like last time. And now everything is going to be horrid. It is hard for you, little one, said Aslan, but things never happen the same way twice. It has been hard for us all in Narnia before now. Lucy buried her head in his mane to hide from his face. 
but there must have been magic in his mane. She could feel lion strength going into her. Quite suddenly, she sat up. I'm sorry, Aslan, she said. I'm ready now. Now you are a lioness, said Aslan, and now all Narnia will be renewed. But come, we have no time to lose. If you compare The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the book, and the movie, and this scene in the beginning, Father Christmas, you will notice that the giving of the gifts order is reversed. That in the movie, Lucy gets her gift first, then Susan, then Peter. This dramatic sword being unsheathed and Peter speaking something to Aslan. But that's not what is the order in the book. And that's because the movie misses C.S. Lewis's point of what is the greater gift. What is the thing to be valued? The movie, in typical Disney Hollywood style, thinks it's the strength, it's the fight, it's the sword, it's the shield that is important. But C.S. Lewis put Lucy last for a reason. Because Lucy, in all of the books of Narnia, is the one we aspire to. Lucy is the youngest. Lucy is the one with faith. Lucy is the one who sees Aslan first and is not sure whether her brothers and sisters will see and believe again. Lucy is the one who heals. And in this scene, in her moments of doubt, she burrows her face into Aslan's mane. Just this picture of oneness with Aslan. Not just looking at his face, a little bit scared of the power of Aslan, but just intimately burrowed into the mane of Aslan to draw her strength from him, to be empowered by him. And so it is with us. We are lionesses and lions of Christ through the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. And it was only made possible because he came in the flesh as a baby, and that is what we celebrate in Christmas, that it is through Christ in us that the world is renewed. What great dignity God gives us. So I say, Embrace the grace and forgiveness you have through oneness in Christ. Embrace the oneness you have with Christ that empowers you to go into this world to offer all of your gifts in service to others for the common good, but to offer the greatest gift you could possibly give to others, which is faith in Christ himself. Go forth this Christmas into the world as lionesses and lions, drawing strength from the Lion of Judah. Let's pray.